You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Today is February 10th, 2021. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I am your host, Tim Hampton. Today, my unusually well-informed guest is Satoshi Takano. Satoshi has had a very diverse career spanning high-tech, education, sales, athlete coaching, and healthcare. Satoshi helped Hitachi Canada prepare for Y2K. At Verizon, he designed and implemented enterprise connectivity solutions. Later at Bell Canada, he focused on sales and marketing. Satoshi led Cisco's integration of Broadsoft, a cloud collaboration company that Cisco acquired. Today, Satoshi's LinkedIn lists five roles that he holds simultaneously. He is a man with, very, with many irons in the fire. Satoshi is an agility instructor to NHL players, a leadership professor at Humber's College of, or Humber College's School of Applied Technology, a business and career coach, and co-founder of the Genus Polino Gordy Howe Research Institute. Today, Satoshi and I are discussing work he is doing to help NHL players develop blistering reflexes, the role of imaging in healthcare, the advice he gives his students to propel them to success as leaders and entrepreneurs, and the impact of automation and COVID on retail, transportation, and offices. Satoshi, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for the uh, awesome intro there. Love it. Glad to have you here. So I'll jump right in by asking uh, a little bit about the, the Humber College gig. So how did that, uh, why did that appeal and how did that come to your attention? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, I went to York University, as you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I was always interested in not teaching, but I guess on the training side. So I did a lot of technical um certifications back in the day with Cisco and Novell and Microsoft. And, and I was always, um, uh, I was always excited when I had like really good teachers and trainers. So uh, as my career progressed, I realized that I found myself in, in front of different people and different crowds and, you know, whether it be business people or uh, engineers trying to, you know, influencing them to do what I wanted them to do. Um, and so when, uh, when I was working at Bell, uh, I ran into a very good friend of mine at the time, uh, him and I worked at both at Bell Canada. Uh, he then, uh, left Bell Canada, went to Humber college and became the associate dean, associate dean. Yeah. So, um, so then as I left, uh, Cisco, no, so as I, as I left Bell, sorry, um, there was an opportunity that um, uh, that the associate dean Vincent had um, helped me out with to to say, hey, you know, how, how about how about teaching some of these engineers the realities of work? And uh, with the business background and the sales background, the technical background that I had, uh, he thought that it would be one of the 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 more creative aspects of being an engineer at Humber College. And I took on that role and um, I've been doing this for almost four years now. And every year it gets better and better because I get better at doing it and, um, and, and delivering, you know, better content and also um, more kind of interesting assignments. 
um, and that are assigned to my students. And, and, you know, 90, like actually this, this semester, 95% of the students are not even in Canada because of COVID. <laughs> right. So um, they're, they're in uh, India, Pakistan, uh, other areas within the world. And they, they love the, the, the course and, and training that, that they're getting from me. And it's different, right? It's not the typical vocational, here's a textbook and go. Um, what, they, what they love about it is that it's very practical, um, but it's also motivating. I, I, you know, I, I'm somewhat of a Tony Robbins slash professor at the same time, um, talking about um, how, how to, you know, kind of going beyond their four walls of, of, of a career and getting them to do something different and uh, kind of pushing themselves. And I think, you know, nowadays with social media and all that, like they can, they can really be themselves. So, um, and, and really thrive. So everything from presentation skills to um, interview skills, resumes to bringing on guest speakers. I've got a gentleman from Cisco coming in next week. I've got another gentleman coming from Google in three weeks. I've got another gentleman from Bell Canada coming in a few weeks. Like, and so, uh, you know, these are things that I never had um, going through university, and I wish I did. And so that's what I'm trying to bring to these students now. And that's one of the great things about this time. I mean, we are all feeling trapped, but in some ways, the community we have is not people down the street or down the hallway. It's people who are genuinely interested in the same thing as you. So the fact that you're able to pull people into your class like that, that's great. Yeah. And I, and I think that speaks to the, the relationships that I've built over the years with these people. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to go back and ask them for favors, right? Because they're not being paid for this stuff. And um, you know, I, I think that's, that's a true Testament. I've got, you know, bell uh, friends that, that, that want to, you know, come and they reach out to me and say, Hey, do you have a new semester? Do you have a new class? I can, you know, talk to talk about some of the things I said, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's key for sure. And one of the things you do, I think that you, you really embrace this idea that we all have to um, not just have a resume, but a reputation. And some of that is online and, and you walk the walk. And so I'm going to walk you through some of the, the wisdom you've dispensed. and Maybe you've even changed your mind over the years. But under the guise of being a humber prof, you wrote an article that said, uh, well, basically, I'll ask you, what's wrong with low-hanging fruit? You wrote an article that said that we shouldn't be going for low-hanging fruit. What's that about? Oh, man. So um, it, it, this whole notion around no, low-hanging fruit. So let me talk about that. So um, when I used to work at Bell Canada, um, at the time, it was always about, hey, what could we sell that's on the truck? What, how do we sell more widgets that we've got on the truck? Um, and And all of a sudden people started calling that the low hanging fruit, right? Like they don't have to work hard. They just have to do more of the same. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't buy into that. And so um, sure. There's people that are, you know, loving, you know, doing the low effort maximum effect approach, which is the low hanging fruit. But for me, um, it wasn't challenging enough. And the reason why we're in our careers and we always want to strive to the next step is because of those challenges. And now you're telling me I don't have to challenge myself to, to do what I'm doing. And so, um, so that article specifically was around, um, you know, whether you call it blue ocean or red ocean strategy, 
Um, it's about doing things that nobody else does. And, and it's the creativity aspect of it. I was actually uh, talking to another gentleman today that, you know, if you really want to innovate, if you really want to kind of push the envelope, you got to be a magician. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't be a, a warrior doing the same. You got to be a magician. You got to create stuff out of thin air and um, ideas, but also execute. Right. And so um, I think that's, that's, that's critical when it comes to, and I think that's what the article was talking about. Yeah, I thought it, it was really, um, it inspired me to rethink some of the things I've heard. Um, for example, Tesla, I mean, what Elon Musk has done to, he wasn't going for the low hanging fruit, which is a better internal combustion engine car. He was saying, let's go for electric vehicles, even though at the time, a lot of people were saying that was impossible. And so it takes a visionary to say, things are going to get worse before they get better. But when we get there, it's going to be a whole lot better. And I, so I thought yeah. that article really, I, I, I was hoping you wouldn't have changed your mind because I really agreed with the premise of that, that article. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I do that to this day. I mean, we, we, you know, sure we could sell more widgets and well, that's great. I mean, that might pay the bills for sure. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I think the, the key is that hybrid way of thinking, which is, you know, sure you gotta, you gotta sell your widgets today, pay your bills, but at the same time, you got to reinvest the money that you make from that and then put that back into innovation and research, right? So yeah, absolutely. And then another one that goes all the way back to 2015, I found on your LinkedIn. So I'm oh, challenging your memory as well as your thoughts here, but you, you said that you write your goals twice a day. Could you possibly still be doing that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Tell me, you know, tell it's, me why I should do the same. It's um, I, I think in the age of social media and ADD and, you know, like we're, our, our minds are being distracted and um, you know, you pulled in so many different directions. Like, I mean, I remember my corporate days is like, um, you're all you're doing is in meetings like eight hours a day. Like when do you actually get anything done? Right. Yep. And um, uh, I mean, obviously I've, I've moved on since those eight hour type meetings, but um, I think it's constantly um, that reminder of, Hey, what am I working towards here? Right. What's the outcome that I'm after? And it doesn't have to be, I know there's no black and white of, okay, it's gotta be five years out or um, you know, uh, a, a week out or whatever. It's, it's whatever resonates with you as to why you're doing what you're doing. So if you look at Elon Musk, um, yeah, I mean, everything is going to Mars, right? So That's Starlink right. is all about going to Mars and um, SpaceX and Tesla and, and you name it, Boring Company, Hyperloop. Like the, the, it's just all a funding formula for him to go to Mars. So um, I've changed my goals as well, right? To, to kind of align with actually Elon's uh, uh, vision um, to go to Mars. And so we've, uh, we've, we've created some new kind of strategy, even with the current business that I have now to start thinking about um, kind of the interstellar, you know, human performance aspect of it. So um, it's, it's kind of brand new, but it's something that we're building right now. I want to dig into that a lot, but (laughs) bear with me. We're going to get to that. Um, um, So, but I want to explore this idea of writing down goals twice a day, because you, you, you reference Elon Musk, who is my spirit animal, right? 
And I know that, that he has very clear missions for both SpaceX and Tesla. Tesla's uh, hastening, accelerating the transition off of fossil fuels. SpaceX is taking us, making the species interplanetary. He doesn't have to write that down twice a day because it's chiseled, right? Um, and I imagine that you have maybe not quite so, um, the, the goals he has are maybe 20 year goals. And I'm sure you have 20 year goals and you probably don't have to write them down every day. So you must be talking about goals that lead to the major goal. How, what is the time frame that you're, the goals you're talking about? So the goals that I put down is uh, specifically, um, it, it's about two, between two to three years. Hmm. Every day. Every day. Wow. Okay. And it sounds it sounds crazy, like Tim. Like it's it, you think, okay, well, you know, what's the goal for the day? So I actually break them out. So there's there's goals uh, that I want to achieve, like the two year, three year goals. But then I also have targets, and they're two different things, right? So, um, I mean, I'll I'll do a hockey analogy because I'm a hockey guy. Um, you know, they say uh, some people say that you know you can't if you have no goal, you can't score. Right. Okay. Right. Fine. But that doesn't always mean you're shooting on net, right? So I come up with targets because targets allow me to kind of um, work towards something, work towards getting to the goal. So if I just make the goal the goal, then that means I got to be shooting all the time, which you may not be. You may be moving out of a defensive zone. You may be getting you know, into the neutral zone. Then you get into the offensive zone. Then you worry about shooting. Mm -hmm. So... So the targets for me are the smaller steps to get to the actual goal itself. So I've broken it down even like more minute. And that's probably like I have targets for the day. Like that, that's something I put down as well on that same page. Um, but I also have the longer term goals, which is that twice a day thing, which is about two to three years out. Okay. That, that's really useful. So you're breaking it down quite a bit. And, and I think the idea of doing it twice a day I, I think I'm going to adopt that. Do you do that in the morning and the and the evening? Like how? When do you do that? Okay. Yeah, morning and evening for sure. Yeah. So I got one more question from the Wayback Machine as far as your your the advice you've given out online, and that is you say to focus on your strengths and drop your weaknesses. Now, whenever you're interviewed for a job, they usually hone in on your weaknesses. They're trying to tick. They're they're trying to find some something they can reject you for. So this probably isn't what you want to emphasize in an interview, but in real life, why would you adopt this approach? So um, I learned that quickly when I was working in the corporate world, right? Like you have all of these objective performance or KPIs, if you want to call it that. And there's always this matrix um, that HR puts out, right? And where do you fit in that matrix? Uh, you know, are you, um, are you an overachiever over, I forget what all the levels were, but, um, all, all that did is help you, um, become kind of neutral, mm -hmm. right? So all your, all your great aspect or your great attributes and your character, keep that, um, but also build on these weaknesses and, um, and that could also go for academics as well, right? So maybe you're a math person and you're terrible at English, which in my case, that was true. Um, but does that mean I'm a bad person, right? Like, it, it, I mean, I could, you know, if you use my strength to a certain way, 
then you'll get way more out of that than than focusing on what weaknesses. And now I gotta you know go back to school and you know learn English and stuff. Then no, like I I don't have time. And I think we need to value that. We need to kind of focus on what are you really good at? What do you love to do? Where do you spend your time most mostly? And just do more of that, right? And uh, I, I think I think you know that's the old school of of trying to focus on your weakness. So I think any weakness can also be turned into a strength, right? So to your point about job interviews, you know, people say, Oh, what's your, what's your biggest thesis? I say, well, I take on too many things. Sure. Right. Well, so I, w- I want to pick up on that because as it, you are an entrepreneur and that puts you in a position where you are able to, for example, work with people who compliment you. So you have a strength, they have a strength together, we're stronger. And I think that's definitely the way to go. And, I, and, and this idea that everybody should only work on their weaknesses, is like saying that the screwdriver should get better at driving in nails. Like, no, that's <laughs> why you have two separate things in the toolbox, right? Right. Um, so I'm wondering though, how you, how you frame that for somebody who's gonna go job hunting as a, as a young person looking for work, you kind of have to fit the mold a little bit, at least in the beginning. And then, or you can actually pursue on like, do a lot of your students go on to, to create their own businesses or are they looking for jobs typically? I would say they're uh, split. I wouldn't say down the middle, probably maybe a 60, 40 split uh, going to work for someone else on the 60 side. Um, and then, you know, they, they, understand that, okay, well, if they, if they want to get into kind of an entrepreneurship program or not program, but as a path, then, you know, there's a lot of other things that they got to worry about, right? They got to start doing learning finance and they got to start learning marketing and they start got to learning, you know, project management. Um, partner with somebody who's already, that, that's why you often see two co-founders, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and, and it is so true. Like, um, you know, in our existing business, we had, we, we, we originally started with three people and one was good as one was the doctor, one's the radiology specialist. And then there's me. And each one of us had a strength and had a weakness. And because there's three, um, we, we only have to be good at two of the three. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and then we, and then we covered up for the other one that was weak on. So for me it was uh, sports and business. My doctor was good at the medical side and sports, but sucked at business, right? And then my radiology guy was good on the business side as well as the, the, um, the business, but you know, didn't know anything about sports. So yeah. it's like, oh, okay, this is a perfect fit. But I think, I think you, know, you really need to understand each other and, and be honest with each other and say, like, what do you love to do? What do you hate to do? And I think that's the key. This is... Uh, um, I think almost that's, that's almost like an interview question, right? For an interviewer, what do you hate to do uh-huh, uh-huh. as opposed to what's your weakness? So this is interesting. I, I want to pull on this thread. I, I'm going to have to be careful. This doesn't go long because I'm having a great time. Um, yeah. I was recently in a meeting with people who were talking about setting up a business and, and they asked me, you know, like, what do we do? We've got, we've got several people in this group and, and, you know, we, we like working together, but it feels like it's going to be unwieldy if we work together to create a new company as all as co-founders. And I said, you know, in my experience, like, and in my research, I've only ever really seen one or two founders, a founder and a co-founder at most. And 
that's because I think it's really hard to get two people to agree on things, let alone three. And so my advice was, you know, you can have two people and then, and then the other people who are your allies, they can be, they can be single digit employee numbers, right? They can still be right at the, the top of the, the pyramid, mm -hmm. but still you have to have two people who are calling the shots in terms of vision and, and mission. How does it work with three people? How are you able to, or, to, to, to um, keep that organized and everybody on board? So that just comes down to trust, right? That comes down to um, knowing each other's character so well. Um, so my doctor is actually a guy that I've known since I was 10 years old. So I've known him for 35 years. Right. Um, and so we just know each other. And to add the, the expertise of the, from the radiology side, it was easy. So... It, it, in that sense, you know, my, my doctor and I were kind of like one unit in, by then. Mm -hmm. So when we did bring on um, the, the radiology specialist, um, it, it just looked like, yeah, I mean, it was like a one plus one as opposed to two plus one. Right. So to your point, I think it's, it's true that if you have two, it's actually, it's, it's doable. It's very doable. Three, um, three is a little bit more like we have to, you know, communication becomes key, right? Yeah. So you, you were in a position to sort of say, this is our vision. Are you, are you on board as opposed to let's the three of us work out a vision from scratch? Right. Right. Um, it, I mean, it's ever changing, right? Like in, in, when you have your own company, you have no boss to report to and you got no, you know, no one else to report to it's the, the vision becomes like, I wouldn't say it's a moving target, but it gets refined. Yeah. Uh, of course, yeah. on a daily basis. No, no plan survives contact with uh, the marketplace, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, like that's the whole Mike Tyson. I forget the quote now. Oh, and everybody, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah, right? Yeah. So I, think I always think someone's... That, line. that was what I, I did. I'll bet you it's in here somewhere. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my blog too. Yeah. So, all right, here we go. So on a scale of one to 10, how much of a hockey fan are you? Uh, one to 10, I would say I'm a solid eight. Really? Oh, I thought you were yeah. going to shoot over 10 on me. There. No, no, no. I, so, I, um, I, 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 I love, I love the players. I love the business of hockey. I love the operational side of hockey. Um, I love the behind the scenes. I love the, you know, um, what athletes are thinking about, um, what coaches are thinking about. But I don't sit and watch every game. I mean, right now there's, you know, 117 games. I'm <laughs> sorry, no, 117 days of hockey. Like I'm not sitting in front of my TV and watching every one of them, right? Okay. So it's all yeah. about balance. All right. Eight's exactly. a solid number. What lessons in hockey apply to business? Lots. Lots. Um, it, it, like you know, everything from, um, you know, how to work together to how to, hire people um oh man there's just so many and, and the 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 ups and downs of a player um understanding their psychology understanding what their strengths and weaknesses are um understanding that um you know not not all players like i mean this goes back to the whole weakness thing right that's right um so i i you know i when i when i work with a, with an nhl player i look i watch their games and I watch every shift and uh, like, like a hawk. And then, and then I can always 
text them and say, Hey, I saw that you were, you know, you, you, you weren't um, doing this, you know, what was going through your mind at that point. And um, yeah, so I, I love the analytical side of things. So um, uh, there's, there's so much, so much I've learned about it. So one of the reasons I wanted to, to go in this order, I wanted to talk about Humber first and then hockey is because, you know, this is another example of Satoshi, the coach, right? Like one, one of the things that, you know, is evident in your career is that, you know, it's not enough just to learn it and use it yourself. You really enjoy the process of sharing that. And you are actually a, a coach in something called cognition school. Uh, what's that about? How does that work? So, um, that all came about as we were developing the business plan for our, um, our medical imaging facility. And we realized that, Hey, if we're going to be scanning brains and, um, analyzing brains and, um, you know, talking about concussions, uh, which is kind of after the fact, right? Like after something happens, we started talking about treatment and we said, okay, well, we can certainly treat it after the fact, but what if we had the ability to train it before they had to come into our facility for imaging? So that kind of, that got us onto this whole track about, um, you know, what's out there that can help to work on, on the sports cognition side and also decision-making. So decision-making is kind of like the hot topic right now in, in hockey and, and a lot of other sports because um, poor decision-making leads to the injuries and leads to concussions and leads to broken arms and so on. Um, but decision-making can also make you, you know, 10 times richer, right, on your contract because you're making the right decisions at the right time, shortening uh, the amount you need to do that. And as long as we can train that, just like training any other muscle, then you'll succeed. You can't, you can't fail by working on on your cognition. So um, we then kind of got onto this whole journey about, okay, then if that's the case, then let's, let's prove this theory by, you know, leveraging any other tool that's out there. And this is the whole academic side of, of research, right? And you come up with your hypothesis and you say, okay, if I do it this way, and if I spend it, you know, about this amount of time, then the outcome is going to be X. So, we went on this journey for, uh, I guess it's, it's been well over a year now. And so we've collected over a million data points with these athletes. And what we found uh, just, just on our own you know, platform of having 350 athletes come th coming through our system, um, at a very elite level, we're still able to improve their um, decision-making speed and cognition by about 37% on average at a pro level. And that's unheard of. And so um, that's why, you know, it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of data points. It takes a lot of energy and effort. But when you, you know, going back to your writing your goals twice a day, right? Like as long as you stay focused on what the outcome that you want to drive, then you'll get there. Now, I could have been wrong, right? I could have been, right? The, it, it may not, it may have been, you know, marginal, might be a 5%, but you know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty significant gap. Right? This is a, a fascinating subject because when we, when you look at somebody on the ice, like an elite athlete on the ice and you see, of course, they're very fast and, and um, you know, they, 
you tend to think of it as athleticism. So they have to be very fit, very fast, very strong and good eyesight, I presume. And you think that they have to be uh, drilled on what's going to happen on the ice, what to expect on the ice. But you don't think of the actual reflexes, the, the, the speed of decision-making as being part of it. At least that never occurred to me. And so, and then further to go a step beyond that and think, and maybe we can improve it and then find out it's 36% is amazing. What are the kinds of exercises that you're getting them to do? Um, so, uh, you know, this is probably my, my time to promote my Instagram thing, but, uh, yeah. but I, I do, I do post a lot links of my, end. what's that? I'll put all the links at the end. Oh, there you go. Um, you know, I, I, I think the, the exercises are, are, um, a lot of it is just trial and error, right? Like, um, there's no textbook that says, um, do this, um, what we found when we first started to where we are now, everything's a, 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 a reinvention, right. Or an innovation of the last one that we did. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had athletes here work with us uh, for over a year now, every week. Um, and they are so incredibly fast with their brain, not just their athleticism. They're already athletic to begin with, but their ability to see things faster than anybody. And we're talking like, um, you know, thousands of a you know, second. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but we're measuring things right down to, um, you know, 32 milliseconds and, and we can see where they are when they first came in. And then we can see, uh, where they are when they finish the program. So our programs are typically 10 weeks long. So, um, when we do them, uh, they're, they're with, they're working with us for anywhere between an hour and a half to 60 minutes, or sorry, to uh, two hours. And all we're doing is working on cognition. So it's very, so I have been to your Instagram and it looks like, for example, you'll have several lights set up and they have to react. So one of the lights turns green, they have to touch it with their left hand. And then the other one will turn red. They have to touch it with the right hand. And you do this so often that it it's like, basically it's hand-eye coordination, but just that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and it's, and it's decision-making as opposed to reaction, right? The reaction is the outcome of the right. decision-making. So, so you're throwing a curve in there. So it's not just hit the, hit the light. It's, it's almost like, um, what we expect on gun ranges, like uh, where you're supposed to shoot at the bad guys, not the good guys, and do it quick. So that right. same that same split second decision making. Exactly. So I mean, we all drive cars, and um, you know, when we're when we're driving, we're constantly I know I hope we're constantly looking at our rear view mirrors. <laughs> we're looking at the side view mirrors when we change lanes. You know, it's shoulder checking, all of that, like. I mean, to me, it's like uh, if you're making a lane change and you're making a shoulder check like this, that means you're not looking at the road. Mm -hmm. So what happens if there's a, you know, a, a car in front of you that slams on their brakes, but you're doing a shoulder check that happens every day. Sure. And um, so it's that type of, of, of quickness. And, you know, if that car does break in front of you, do you go left? Do you go right? Do you not do anything? Um, I mean, we're deciding every single day what to do, when, even when we're driving. And I, and so the best analogy that I give to, especially the younger uh, athletes, is 
you know, I asked them, what did it feel like when you were first driving your car for the first time? And they're like, well, I was nervous, right? Like, you know, uh, do you remember looking at the rear view mirror? They say, no, they're just like so focused on the road. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then after time, you know, you start to get good at it and you're able to see, you know, left, right, and what's in front of you, all that, right? So, um, yeah, the exercise that we do is very similar to that, but it's very targeted. It's, you know, using your hands, using your feet, um, you know, seeing in split seconds. So, so when we, see, when we show them uh, certain types of symbols that, that we display in the lights, you know, we're talking 32 milliseconds for them to see it. It takes about another 20 milliseconds for them to get to the brain. Uh, and then it takes another, you know, 30, 30 milliseconds to then decide. And then it takes about, you know, 100 to 200 milliseconds for them to move. So then, you know, the, the best, uh, the, the data points that we see in, in our, and what we've seen, we've seen as a trend is that um, your body actually moves 10 times or 10 to 12 times slower than when you actually saw it. So if you see something on something, some object flying, you know, across you in 32 milliseconds and it's coming at you and you got to move, you're probably going to be reacting at around 400 milliseconds, almost, almost half of half a second. Mm-hmm. And so we're now trying to shrink that down to uh, under, you know, 300 milliseconds. Now, if you can do that, then that means you, you can probably, you know, score more goals in, in your game because you've just cut down 150 milliseconds, 150 milliseconds on the ice. It's incredibly like, it's a long time, right? Right. Well, so, when you're competing with people who measure things in hundred milliseconds, absolutely. Yeah. And then and, and I've we, seen you apply this to the face off too, right? Like when the puck drops, obviously this is a, it, it, like it, it happens in the blink of an eye. You need a high speed camera to see what's going on there. Exactly. Yeah. So we can, we can time everything. We can uh, compare players to say, okay, that particular face off, you know, the guy was, the guy was 150 milliseconds slower than the other guy. And that's, that's why he got the puck. Yeah. And so, so, yeah. Is this part of the Gordie Howe research Institute or how, how are these different projects related? Yeah. So there are two parts. Um, so one part is uh, the Gordie Howe research Institute, which is specifically more focused on the, um, imaging side on the medical imaging side. Um, and so that's more for the research for, uh, working with the folks at Brock university, um, to, to give in, to give them access to the imaging equipment, plus the, the, um, the data, right. That they can then take and, 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 uh, process the other side of the business, which is the Plano athletic performance side is, uh, is more on, um, the physical kind of movement aspect of it, the cognition part of it, um, the strengthening part of it, the rehab, the hyperbaric chambers that we're going to have, um, you know, so, and then we're going to have like hot and cold tubs and, and, uh, an underwater treadmill, like, I mean, this goes on and on, but, um, it's to kind of, I would say it's more on the, the wellness and therapy side of things. Um, and, but they go hand in hand with the imaging, because if we know that, you know, Tim, if you came one day and you're working on your cognitive side with us, and then we're like, ah, you know what, you're, you're usually at this level 
um, on these particular exercises, but you're clearly not, Hey, did you, f- you know, fall on the ice or, you know, and then one day you'd be like, yeah, I think I did. I remember kind of, you know, taking a spill one day and then, and then we can immediately put you into the imaging side to actually see what's going on in your brain. So then we can tie all those together and then we can start to, you know, apply some, some AI and ML and all that good stuff against it. Right. Yeah, that that's amazing. So the, the fact that it's all integrated and there's so many facilities that work together like that, it, it really is one-stop shop. It kind of makes me think of, I don't know which Rocky it is, but the one with Dolph Lundgren, where they show his training regime and it's yeah. all electronic and they've got, um, you know, C- scans going on of everything and, and counts. But this is happening in real life. I mean, I'm sure it didn't happen back then. They were kind of exaggerating the, the facilities they would have had available, but now you're, you're really doing it. And, and what's interesting to me is it's not just strength. It's not just speed, but it's the cognition too. It's, it's really the whole athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's becoming more and more evident that, um, you know, hockey is not about bodybuilding, right? Like if, if Arnold Schwarzenegger was playing hockey, would that mean he'd be a great hockey player? And no, right. Like, so uh, it's, it's a combination of, of, strength of course and speed and all of that but um everything starts with the brain you skate with the brain you shoot with yep. the brain you pass with the brain jet lee if you're gonna have one expendable it would be jet lee you'd want uh on the ice because at least you would have the reflexes that you're talking about yeah it'd be a great goalie for sure yeah for sure well you know it reminds me a friend of mine was saying he was just standing on the curb uh standing on the sidewalk uh in toronto and there was a collision and a car came straight at him and he credits his uh, martial arts training with him having the reaction time to get out of the way. So this idea that, that you can train for speed, uh, I think, is, is really, uh, really powerful. Yeah. So talking again about the Gordie Howe Research Institute, you held a press conference uh, with a unique show and tell that vividly illustrated the wear and tear that elite, elite athletes go through. What was that? Oh, man. So, um you know, we, we've got some really great, um, you know, friendships and relationships with the Howe family and they've been a huge, um, proponent of ours. And, uh, um, so when we did our press conference, um, you know, it was, uh, it was unbelievable actually. Um, we had the, um, the minister of, uh, I think they call it tourism and sport, um, and culture at the time. I know they renamed it. Um, so we had the minister, uh, speak on our behalf. Uh, we had Murray Howe, so Murray Howe's Gordy Howe's, uh, um, son. And, uh, he's also a radiologist as well in the U S so, you know, gr- um, graciously they came up and spoke on our behalf as well. And, and, uh, you know, shared some of the, the images of Gordy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and then told the story along with it. And these are, um, you know, images that have never been shown to the public. And so it was a true honor to, to, to have them do that for us. Um, as well as Canon, who's our, um, our strategic partner for our medical imaging equipment as well. Um, so they've been, yeah, I mean, it was like a win-win for everybody and, and, um, and it was a good opportunity to kind of demonstrate, um, you know, what it is that we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And, uh, um, and we had the the firepower to to really um, you know bring the story front and center. So so that's something that um, that we were really focused on at that time. 
So you, you actually told me a little bit, I wasn't able to be at the press conference, but you told me a little bit about it. And you told me that his, was it his Stanley cup ring was yeah. in some of the scans because his, he, 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 the rigors that he'd been through, I guess the, the wear and tear, he got to the point where he couldn't take it off. So yeah. they scanned him with the ring on. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Uh, it's, uh, uh, so so Murray kind of walked us through, and you know it was it was almost like he can't be human, right? Like yeah. I, I mean, he had he had a, a bone sticking out of his elbow that I've never seen before. Um, you know, he had. I mean, I I met the guy when when I was really young, and I remember put my hand like you know up, and and, <laughs> and he just literally just like he was like encompassed a, it. Yeah, he, he just like devoured it, and uh, um. But yeah, the ring one was interesting um, because, you know, uh, Murray did everything top to bottom, uh, did his head, did an MRI, did a CT scan. You could see the you could see the hole in his head that they had to drill. Um, and it's still there at the time. And and uh, yeah, so the ring was clearly on there because it's it was right there. So yeah. um, but he couldn't take it off anymore. But yeah, I mean, what what a what a beautiful uh, sort of testament to a, 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 a beloved player, but also I think a great illustration of the kind of work that you're going to be able to do, right? Which is, you know, identify problems that are going on in the body and, and come up with, with ways to deal with them. So yeah, what a fantastic illustration. I love that. Um, mm. But it does beg the question, because I think you listed that you had MRI, CT scans, x-rays. Do you, I know that you're at the business end and, the, and sort of the, the athlete end of the business, but um, do you know how we choose between all these different uh, scans and, and what one's good for as opposed to another? Um, yeah, so I, I, can't, I can't get into too, too technical stuff just, just because I'm not, that's again, not my strength, but, um, but what I can tell you is, um, the, you know, we've, we've got some unique capabilities that are built into, uh, what we offer. So, um, there's some really interesting, um, technologies for, uh, so that, I mean, if you've ever been in an x-ray machine, I think we all have at some point. Um, there, there's an element of radiation and, and x-ray technology. Um, CT is kind of the next level up from there, which is, which still does emit some form of radiation and, uh, um, the, 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 and then, but there's also, you know, just like a, a car, there's the entry level version of a CT. And then there is the whole enchilada version of the CT and, um, what we've decided to invest in with uh, with what we're doing is going for everything. And so um, it's uh, uh, there's a specific type of a scan that that happens on these machines is it's, it's called dynamic volume and uh, dynamic volume basically allows us to um, record everything as a video as opposed to a static image. Um, it does it in what they call a 16 centimeter, um, diameter, I think. And, uh, it's able to scan more of what it wants to take a photo of than anything close to what's available today. Secondly, uh, er like I said, everything's a video. And so instead of you having to stay still and, and not move, 
we can have you move. So if you have a problem with your wrist, you can come in and say, okay, Satoshi, it, take, it hurts when I turn my wrist a certain way. Okay, great. We can put you in and then we can scan you along the way. And, and where it hurts, we can actually see why it's hurting. Right. So uh, when we do that, um, it, it's, we actually um, increase the, the, the chance of seeing where you're hurting um, much, much better. So you're not misdiagnosed. And, uh, um, and also it's doing this at 95% less radiation than any other CT on the market. So, um, so what that means is that if you have a baby, um, under normal circumstances, they have to be sedated because they're, they have to, they can't move. Don't move. Um, with what we're implementing, um, they don't have to do that. Or if you're if you're if we're doing cardiology type of a study, we can we can take an image of your heart in one heart and like doing one single heartbeat in a video. Yeah. So um, a lot of the stuff like hasn't been implemented at all in North America for that matter. So it's it's really neat. So but so this means and you you said a few times that this produces a video and there and there's so many complementary technologies that are emerging today like artificial intelligence ar vr it seems like with this data it, the technology may not be in in uh, common use now but you could imagine a surgeon for example having augmented reality, being able to look over his shoulder or her shoulder and say, okay, can you rotate the wrist a little bit? I need to see what's going on there before I put a knife in. Um, And then even artificial intelligence, like you could, you could potentially say we've done, you know, if you got to the point where you had 350 athletes who've been through this, you could say, not only can I see what's wrong with your wrist, I can see that a hundred guys are following in line that the, the AI is able, or the machine learning is able to say that's going to happen to this, this player too. Exactly. The prediction part. Yeah. So this is exciting stuff. Yeah. Are, yeah. Where, so where, where, what are some of the things that, that you see on the horizon? Um, so exactly to your point about um, taking the data and making it more meaningful and multi-purpose, right? So, um, you know, on one end, you know, if you happen to come in for a scan of your head and we took a picture of it, we put it through, you know, AI or machine learning and potentially, I mean, obviously everything is, is, uh, has to be verified by an actual radiologist, but um, it may one one day come back and say, hey, um, this little dot over here, um, it's something that we, the machine noticed. And uh, it's something to just kind of keep an eye on, mm-hmm. um, nothing more. But, uh, but again, it's the machine helping us as opposed to, you know, we have to adapt to the machine. And, and my goal is to, is to make sure all of that is done, um, number one, securely, right? And, and with respect, because it's obviously a regulated industry. So, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of other rules and regulations that have to be applied to it, like who owns the data and so on. Um, so security, privacy, um, you know, how, like who gets access to the data, all that has to be defined. So, you know, we're, we're going to be getting to the point where, um, you know, we're like any other enterprise with all this data and trying to, you know, merge all of them and make sense of it as opposed to separate silos. So um, it, it's, it's a fascinating space to be in and these images are are you know 500 gigabytes 
each. Right. And so there's a whole other issue about, you know, storage and all <laughs> yeah. that too. Right. So uh, yeah, very fascinating. So um, I found the, the, the quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and here it is. And I, it was because I was going to ask you about COVID um, and how that, I mean, in general, I like to talk about how that's changing the world, but how has it affected your, your ventures? Um, definitely an impact, right? Like, you know, all the stuff that we were, we had planned to do and, you know, we're, we're having to kind of, um, do all the renovations and, 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 uh, put the, uh, steel walls up and stuff for these machines. Like all, all of that, you know, came to a halt, uh, uh, early, early on. Um, but you know, we've learned and we've adapted and, um, uh, so, so absolutely. So we've, we've had to, um, adapt to that, but also, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff online now. Right. And, um, you know, we're, we're doing some cognitive training online, uh, through the cognition school cognition school is, is started off with a hockey kind of a feel to it, but it can apply anywhere, right. We can have cognition school for, you know, race, race car drivers or tennis or, or your sport. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the rest is just, uh, up to the content and which is what we're, kind of focusing on right now and as far as you know a lot of people have said about covid that it's not so much that um it's changed what the world is going to be like it's just that it accelerated the change so things like people doing things remotely as you as you do presumably we would have got around to that anyway um but it's changing so many industries and I'd like to kind of go through them a little bit and get your thoughts. Cause you know, I, I love hearing what you think about them. And one is sort of the end of retail. Now there are, there are two components to retail. One is the experience, but also the other is just getting stuff conveniently. And certainly COVID has, has sort of take, skewed us all in the direction of no, thank you. I won't go in, just send it to my house or put it in my trunk. And so we have uh, things going on like um, Walmart, Amazon, you got deliveries that are changing. Do you think that when COVID clears up, we'll go back to normal? Or do you think that this is sort of a permanent change? Um, good question. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the school of thought of, you know, it's going to stay this way for a long time, right? That, um, you know, any crowd gathering, I think people are going to be like, whoa, like, you know, they're not going to, they're going to shy away from it. And so I think there's certainly people, group of people that are, you know, wanting to go into the stores and still do the same way that they've been doing it before. But I think this was the, this was like a, almost like a new world. And so, um, you know, I know, I know people throw around the, the new normal term, but there was no normal to begin with. So it's, um, I, I think everything is changing and, um, yeah, I think retail has um, has a lot of things to think about, right? Like, as long as they're still surviving. I mean, I, I know that a lot of companies are are shutting their doors right now, but um, and then they're not going to make it. But I think it it just forces us to all become magicians, right? Like, um, you know, this is unprecedented. It's it's something that um, nobody expected. And, you know, luckily we had some technologies available that we can do things like Zoom and conferencing, but I think we still have a long ways to go, right? Like Zoom is not for everybody, right? Yeah. Like, uh, like 
you know, we know that in the education side, like they're using Zoom exactly the way that enterprises use it, and it's totally not engaging. And so um, we need to think about how do, how do we improve what's in front of us now? And, uh, and same with retail, like you got you to gotta engage customers like you never have before, and you got to be comfortable with that change. And I think the more that you resist, um, you know, th- then you'll just naturally get left behind. It's just, that's just the way the market works. Yeah. Well, so play along with me on this thought. So there are, when you buy something, you're, the, you're basically buying it from the manufacturer, but it passes through retail, it passes through distribution. And companies like Walmart and Amazon are basically driving the cost of distribution and warehousing to zero. You know, one of the one of the reasons they're so hard to compete with is they borrow more money than they make. I mean, Amazon's starting to make money, but in general, they're 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 sort of betting with the house money. They don't have to make a profit because they're continually expanding. Mm-hmm. And so, I I actually don't think that a, a, you know the only the experience retail, the retail where you really feel like okay, I want to feel it, I want to smell it. I want to, I, I want to experience it's a luxury experience. You know, people do shop retail therapy. I'm not one of those people just deliver it. Thank you very much. But I think that for everybody else who just wants the thing, the food, whatever, um, I don't think there's any going back. I don't know if you've, you've heard of a company called Okado, not to be confused with OCAD university. It's, it's mm-hmm. a company, uh, I think it is out of England and they have, uh, warehouses the size of like maybe four football fields and it's a grid with little wally type robots on it and they can only go left right backwards and forwards on this grid they lift up one pair of wheels and go one way and it's just amazing that it's almost it almost reminds me of um if you if you have a mental picture of the way ram works you know so you just you just put a, a bit there and a bit there and a bit there. So this is just a bit of groceries, right? And, right. and then when you, when, you, when you send a call, it, it says it puts your order together for you and drops it off. It's amazing the efficiency these things have. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you, did you see that, that Amazon video of, of the way they, uh, they work in the warehouse? I, I oh think yeah, it just same idea. The little robots lifting up the carts and everything. Yeah, but they talk about the whole process, like from when you click buy, how it actually all of that happens and then they they introduce um you know amazon whatever along the way and it's all has to do with data and how they came up with their i mean they they use what they sell and in Mm. fact i think it got created because of the way they they have to design the uh, warehouse and so uh and all those robots like um uh they they said that they uh there's more efficiency in in uh, not keeping all the products in the same bins. Right, right. Because you can and, get to it faster, but you know exactly where it is because you're a robot. Right. And it takes a picture of that specific side of the cart of where that item is. So it knows where it was. So then when the picker needs to then now get it, um, there's a, a light that shines in that specific bin to tell the, per- the picker exactly where it is mm-hmm. because that's where it was placed. And, uh, and, and Amazon has this fantastic, it's almost like a sales pitch of all their products, but, uh, um, yeah, I I thought it was fascinating. 
Okay. So here's what I want somebody to actually, I don't have the energy to start this company. Maybe you will. It's the, the home robot. So I give it my scissors and I, and that's it. That's all. I never see my scissors again until I say to the robot, go get the scissors. Yeah. And if I do that often enough, that robot will have a complete inventory of my house. Right. And then when I say to my robot, uh, how many scissors do I own? It turns out I have six pairs <laughs> and it has a picture of each and every one of them. And Which I say, okay, put five of them on eBay. Right. So it gets to the point where the home inventory becomes really efficient too. Yeah. Yeah. And then we just don't get off our couch now. Well, right? You know, I was just, I was just about to say, instead of doing that, maybe I should go to cognition school. So I know where my scissors are. But that's another, <laughs> we'll see if I can get a rate. Um, my next question when it comes to what COVID's changed in the world is, is about food in general. So mm -hmm. we already talked about Walmart. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I get my food put in my trunk at Walmart. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I, I didn't do it before. I was one of those people who's like, I want to see the food. I've got a route I go through. I, you know, I, I know exactly what I'm doing when I go to the store, mm -hmm. but it, it occurred to me, you know, when I go to the store, every time I want, want to buy something, I add it to the list, right? So I have a list and I go to the store with the list and I check things off. Why on earth am I not just putting it on a list of things that will actually be put in my trunk? Like it's so much more convenient. I know. I know. And, and so I, anyway, I don't think that's going to change. But what I think is really intriguing is what's going on in the restaurant industry. Now, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel intriguing if I was in the restaurant industry. Those people are, are suffering and, I, and it's not good. And I'm, I'm not celebrating what's happening to them. But what's interesting is, is maybe, I'll, maybe I'll back up and talk about universities a little bit. So universities and colleges, one of the things we've always talked about, I work at a university, it's always... When you think about your own experience, it's you make friends, you make contacts for the future, you're hanging out with people who have the same interest as you, you're, you're, you're creating a relationship with the faculty member, you're going to sporting events, you're going out for drinks, you're going out for, for meals with people, and, and also you happen to be learning, right? right? And so it's a basket of things that you get from university, not just the education, not just the piece of paper. Right. And so people are like, what am I getting for my money? If all I'm getting is the education and the piece of paper, I'm not getting all the other experiences. Right. And so there's this atomization, like, like what we used to think of as one thing is, oh, it turns out it's two or three things. Some mm -hmm. things you don't need a place to do some things you do. Mm -hmm. And you see that happening with, with the restaurant business. I don't know if you've heard of this notion of a ghost kitchen. So uh, I've heard of it or, or dark kitchens or like, it's basically like a Domino's pizza but there's no seating. There's no cash register. It only delivers. Right. Right. right and then right. you get, and then you build one of those for Uber eats, but that same kitchen can have maybe five different chains operating out of it. Mm -hmm. It creates this whole ecosystem of different entrepreneurs. Like you could be the entrepreneur that owns the ghost kitchen. And then I could be the entrepreneur that comes in and sets up a pizza hut. Right. Right. Um, I, it just reminded me, I wanted to bring it up with you because one of your videos from Humber was of the robots making coffee. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, 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 the yeah. Robotics. Uh, yeah, the robotics. Yeah. Sort of robotic yeah. show going on at Humber. That's right. Yeah. And can you imagine a future where even the food itself is being made by robots? Oh yeah, it's it's a matter of time. It's a matter of time. I think the technology is there. It's just it hasn't been evenly distributed yet, right? Mm -hmm. Like so. It's one of these things that um, 
uh, you know, cost is going to come down. It's going to be more accessible. Everything's going to be democratized. In fact, probably going to be free, right? And and so when once that happens, then it's it's game over. So uh, I I tell I tell all of my you know friends and and their kids like get into robotics, like that's the future, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's, we're not, we're not quite there where we're going to be printing our own food yet, but that's coming too, I'm sure. Oh my God. uh, I was just watching a, 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 a YouTube about that. I mean, they're, they're really at the point where what's interesting about that is not just that they can grow meat. It's that they can grow meat. You've never eaten. Right. (laughs) So they could grow, they could grow moose meat if that's what you have a hankering for. Right. Right. And right. so it becomes it becomes an interesting thing where it's not just preparing food, but it's actually designing food. Right. That right. is interesting. Yeah. You know, who knows what we'll be eating? <laughs> yeah, they, oh, exactly. They, the, the point the point that the I'll have to add this to the end of the, sh- the show notes. But um, she was saying, you know, the reason we eat beef is because cows were easy to domesticate, not necessarily the best meat on earth. Right. right. And so you could, you could really create just about anything. So imagine that you're growing the, you're growing the food, the robots are putting it together. It's being whisked to your house by Uber eats. I actually wonder if, if, or drones or drones. I actually wonder if some really dense locations, Toronto, maybe, but Manhattan for sure. You know, if you have a kitchen in your Manhattan apartment, that's what a hundred square feet. And what does that cost you a month? Mm Mm-hmm but you could order everything in you. I wonder if kitchens will go by the wayside, if they will be like, um, you know, uh, the separate entrance for the staff, nobody has that anymore. Right. right? And so maybe right. I won't even have a kitchen anymore. Yeah, no, well, that's true. I think, uh, especially if you're, uh, you know, like single and, and you're just living in a department. I mean, this happens in Japan all the time, right. Where, um, you know, the, the, the convenience store, the seven 11 around the corner is way better and more efficient and cheaper than you having a kitchen and making it yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I, I mean, I, I subscribe to the, uh, the good food. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, deliveries. Yeah. The deliveries and they're fantastic. Cause it's a hybrid, right? It's but the food kits, right? You make it yourself. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So you make it yourself, you order, you know, what you like and, and it gets delivered to you. You spend your 20, 30 minutes in the kitchen and you make the stuff and, you know, you, you made it. And so, um, and it's ridiculously simple and, and you don't overbuy your, these ingredients that I always normally buy. Like, you know, when I was, um, when I was living by myself, man, I'd go to Costco to buy ingredients. And then you realize I, I'm not even using a 10th of yeah. the stuff that I ordered. And then you toss That's out a great price for a pound of parsley. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm going to put 99% of in the garbage someday. Yeah. But you know, I mean, that, that's funny that you mentioned that because I, I, I was speaking with somebody else about environmental concerns. And what surprised me was that these meal kits, even though they have an appalling amount of packaging, are actually better for the environment than shopping for yourself because you wind up making entire meals and not throwing anything, any of the food out. Nothing. Anyway. Nothing. So it's really good for that. And, yeah, and, I mean, up front you think, oh my god, it's like a hundred bucks for like three meals, right? Or eighty bucks for three meals. But then you work out the numbers, and it's actually you're you're actually ahead. Yeah, you right? have leftovers, and so that's more than just three meals, or or you're feeding several people, right? Or, yeah, yeah, like it's for that's for like two people, and uh, you know, every every day it's something different, and new, and um, yeah, it's I think it's great. 
it's a great it's a great kind of combination of the two so as far as um how the world is changing i, I wouldn't really put this at covid's feet but it's definitely something we're seeing is the tra the transportation changes so we got evs coming or or you know already the, the debate is whether they will completely replace ICE car internal combustion cars or if they'll always coexist and to what extent they'll 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 replace them but also the the autonomous vehicle the robo taxi and the the robot trucks and things you see a lot of people estimating when this is all going to happen and change our lives and change our cities when do, when do you see autonomous vehicles really making a dent I, that's a good no, question. No I, unintended. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm almost putting the cognition school out of business, right? Like, um, but I, I think, I think the biggest hurdle is not the technology at that point. I think, I mean, we're seeing that now, right? Like if autonomous vehicles are here, they're, they can do what we want them to do. It's just that, you know, it's still, you know, not perfected yet. And, um, you know, it's getting going, getting into accidents and hitting people and stuff. And so the Uber project, I think in Pittsburgh, I think it was Las um, Vegas. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Like that got halted, not because of the technology. It's just, yeah, it's, there's a human element to it and there's safety. Right. So I think for that reason, I think it's going to take a long time for, for, for autonomous vehicles to completely be, you know, where, where we thought it was going to be like, you know, and uh, um, uh, yeah, I think the technology is here. It's just not perfected yet. I think it will be right. Like it's. Well, I, I know that you have a, a, an interest in AI and of course this is one of the, you know, most interesting AI projects, right. Is, is how do you get a car to deal with all the complexity of the road and, and traffic and markings and so on. Um it, and and it's been an eye opener for me because I'm 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 like I said I'm really interested in Tesla and, and what they're doing, and you know when I when I was a kid you know Star Wars came out and they had these two robots that would talk to one another and even as a kid I thought that was pretty unrealistic I couldn't imagine even until ten years ago. The, the dots that would connect from the dumb machines we use now that obviously are capable of doing things repetitively really fast, but how, how do they become capable, like genuinely learning? It's only in the last 10 years I've really been able to see it mentally. And the way, the way Tesla's doing it is they just ingested a ton of data from the driving, from the driving and they also flag things that are going wrong. So if a Tesla almost runs a red light or a stop sign or something, the driver can flag it. So it feels to me like, it, I think your, your point is that it's not just the technology, it's also legislation, right? You have to have mm -hmm. municipalities and, and, and states and countries say, okay, it's legal for a car to drive itself like who do you arrest if it runs somebody over that kind of thing right 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 yeah no for sure i think um um i mean i mean tesla's i mean they're 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 getting data collection for free actually people are paying for the cars that's to be nice. a collection agent yeah. right that's and amazing. so um yeah that's it's brilliant um you know i think um just like any other technology, right? I mean, you go back to the, the Amazon warehouse thing with the robots, right? Like they, they've perfected it 
in that environment, right? And it even knows when it's going to break down that it needs to go in for a repair. Like it, it does it on its own. Yeah. So if it's in that type of a controlled environment, it works. And so I think um, the only difference between an Amazon warehouse and real life is there's just thousands and thousands more variables that these machines have to learn from and make decisions on. Yeah. So I, it's, it's here. It's uh, you know, it's, it just hasn't necessarily uh, come out of its shell yet because it's not really ready. Right. So yeah. I think I, maybe, you know, 10 years from now. Right. Yeah, I think, probably- I think 10 years is a good bet to, to, to start the, the day you and I can hail. So we should probably mention where is, um, the Gordie Howe Institute located? Uh, so it's in uh, Thorold, Ontario, uh, Niagara region. Um, and uh, it's across the street from Brock University. So if you've ever been there, um, it's uh, about an hour door to door from Toronto and uh, much closer from the, the border as well. So we expect that there's going to be a lot more people coming from the US at some point uh, once the borders open up. So um yeah that's where we are and yeah, the uh, reason i bring it up is because you know when i say when you and i get to call a robo taxi you and i are both located you know around toronto we both you're in you're in you're uh west of toronto i'm north of toronto but uh well actually no you're actually in toronto that's considered yeah. part of toronto yeah yeah um so when when do you think we'll be able to hail an an uber robo taxi a robo taxi you mean to get to the clinic or even the, just uh, to be just in toronto in general but yeah like if i want to get to the clinic because i busted my ankle you know it's funny because um i i think it's gonna be sooner than later because i need it right so um it's an hour door to door and in that hour or two hour commute there's a lot of things i could be doing in that car absolutely so um, whether it be catching up on my sleep or, you know, sending emails or whatever, being on a meeting where I'm not distracted. Listening to a uh, podcast, always a worthwhile activity. Yeah, this like this one right here. And so um, actually, no, it's funny. I, I It's an hour door to door and I always make sure I have a podcast on on each way. And man, I've learned so much in that one hour drive. Um, and then I've got something, you know, always to think about or talk about. So it's true. Always I, I wonder what's going to happen to podcasts when nobody drives anymore. They actually did say the podcast listening did go down slightly when COVID hit because nobody's commuting. Right. Right. So you almost kind of have to force yourself to go outside. After I, that, I may right? have to go onto YouTube at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's uh YouTube has been, you know, I think everybody's best friend for I this whole so. COVID situation. So um, yeah. Yeah. So another, another thing that's going on in the world, and it, it's hard to say what COVID's role in this, but there's been a real sort of push and pull when it comes to the business model of WeWork. You know, mm. WeWork famously got overvalued and, and, you know, presumably thanks to COVID, they've really had to capitulate and give up on some of their leases because I don't know how many people want to share an office right now. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting, again, it's another one of those things that's changing the world because, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording about, somebody you met on Zoom who had a, this beautiful beach background. And you're like, oh, that's a great background. And it turns out they were really on the beach. Yeah, exactly. 
And we're at this point now where so many of us can work from anywhere. I actually think that maybe when COVID clears up, this WeWork type of facility will have a resurgence. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I actually had space in WeWork downtown. Um, I don't know if you knew about that, but um, I, I I was there, and you know, I could I could have been working from home and 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 you know just doing that, but you know, the, the human side of me said, you know, I, I need to get out. I need to kind of sometimes get into a routine of going into an office or whatever. And uh, even though, you know, work is something that you do, it's not a place you go at the same time, there's something, you know, kind of therapeutic, if you will, about being able to, you know, just take the subway and, you know, and, and kind of people watch and, and, and kind of, feel like, yeah, you're, 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 you're going to be productive. And so, um, so I did actually have space and, and we worked for about a year and, uh, and I just actually moved out in February of 2020. So just before COVID hit and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, man, I mean, it was a great place to work. Like I, I tell you, I, I, I probably met a lot of good people. I, I got a lot of work done, got a lot of free coffees, um, got to work in, and all these different locations. So, um, you know, I was down in DC in the West coast, uh, I would travel and look for a WeWork office and, and it was great. Um, but to your point, I think, um, you know, once COVID hit, uh, they, I mean, it must've been decimated. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I do actually do have a client right now that that is in a WeWork office still. Um, and you know, anytime I have a, a, a video conference with her she's always there's always people behind her so th there are there are people there mm -hmm. um i guess it depends right like and you know the severity of this whole shutdown is different everywhere so in toronto and ontario uh, most canada for the most part you know complete shutdown not going anywhere but other parts in the world nothing's changed right like sweden didn't shut down and and yeah. everything's operating so if you're a we work office user in that space probably not that much of a change right but well, and the other thing is that we've had a year now to realize that we don't necessarily have to report to the main office so you know the 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 business model of being able to go so you don't have your kids and your pets and your neighbors annoying you all the time right um or or delighting you but nevertheless distracting you from work um but the other thing too is that even in 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 with the specter of things like covid having your workforce distributed a little bit is a good idea. So if there's an outbreak at a WeWork, it doesn't wipe out a whole company. Right. Right. So there's something. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, when we used to work at Cisco, you know, um, there was, they used to call it, you know, building A and B and C, and then they ran out of letters and then they <laughs> have to go to numbers. Yeah. And then, you know, um, uh, back in the day before all this collaboration stuff was available, like I think they probably had like 30, 30 some odd buildings in one campus. Right. And so, um, but now because of all this, like it just made everything that much more real in terms of having less real estate. I mean, I used to sell collaboration tools all the time to clients and say, Hey, look how much money you can save when you, when you reduce your, when you reduce your lease and, they said, "Oh no, not buying it. We need people, you know, bums in seats." And yeah. and uh, I remember talking to a bank long time ago, and we talked about remote agents working from home, and they hated it because they said, "Well, what if uh, an intruder came into the house and pointed a gun at the agents and said, you know, pass transfer money from here to here?" I said, "Really? Come on, 
right? Yeah. Like, um, but that was their, you know, I don't know if it's an excuse or 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 a real objection or not, but um, but now they're forced to, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting time. So, this is the last question. Um, and it's a tough one. So if you need a moment, I, it's not dead air. It's just Satoshi thinking a little bit. We talked at the, the beginning about the importance of mission and setting your goals. What, what is your mission? What is Satoshi Takano's mission? Um, I had it written down, um, a long time ago. It's, it's, uh, I've, I've taken it off because uh, I was renovating, but, um, but essentially, um, you know, my, my mission is to make this place better than when I found it. And what I mean by that is, you know, the way I talk to people, the connections I make with the people, uh, helping them get to where they need to go before me, um, and, uh, and, and just building trust so that every day I can always feel like I'm making progress as opposed to a status quo. So, um, I mean, I, I, I've been very lucky because growing up, um, you know, my, my parents never said no to me, uh, learning about new things. And, um, uh, I mean, my, my father was, you know, and came from the corporate side, longtime accountant, you know, ran a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and normally you would think, well, you know, you want the son to, to take over or, or work in the same company, right? You can kind of do the corporate thing. But um, my father wasn't like that. He he let me experiment and play and and learn and make mistakes and and I make thousands of mistakes, right? Like, um, and so I I want to you know I I've learned from it. Um, you know I I hope I don't make it again. And and uh, but at the same time, I think I I, I love. I mean, the one thing I learned from my dad was um, when I walk into his company, he used to work at Canon. um, And so there's an office here in Mississauga in Toronto. And um, I could walk into that office today. He's, he's retired since, right. Like he's been away from Canada for a long time. Um, But to this day, I could walk into that place and there's still people working there was from when he was kind of the, the leader there. Um, they'd all say, you know, your dad was great because I can, there's a time that, um, you know, I was, I needed his help about something and he was right there. He never said no. He always helped everybody. And he, he would, um, so these guys would talk, talk to me about my dad doing so-and-so things, right? Like that, that helped them get to where they need to go. So, um, I, I take that to heart because it's like that, that's kind of the, you know, when that's the scenario where people talk about you when you're not in the room mm-hmm. and, and what do you want them to say when you're not in the room? Right. And I, and I've been in many situations where um, I would walk into a room, the other person is not in the room and all of a sudden they blast that guy in, in front of me. And I'm like working with the guy mm-hmm. and I'm like, how does that even, how's that even possible? Right. And so uh, I feel guilty just listening to that kind of stuff. And so when I, you know, with me, it's my mission is to make sure that, you know, people, people say great stuff about how I impacted their lives, uh, but I'm not in the room. Yeah. So well, you're definitely going about it the right way. Uh, and, and you're definitely follow, following in your father's footsteps. I was going to suggest that the through line I see 
is that Satoshi is uh, bringing out the best in others, whether it's the mm-hmm. coaching at Humber or the coaching with the hockey players, like you, you, you know, you're very generous in that way. So it's uh, it's great work. Well done. Yeah, I know. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. So thank you, Satoshi, for being my guest today. Pleasure. This is awesome. Any articles we mentioned will be in the show notes along with Satoshi's contact information. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 